The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we work and how we live. Our guest for this episode is Jesper Broden, IKEA's CEO. Listeners who've been with us for a while will remember our pre-pandemic conversation in an IKEA bathroom back in 2019. Now, to be fair, it really wasn't a bathroom. It was what a bathroom might look like if you bought it from IKEA. But still, we'd never done a bathroom conversation before. At the time, Jesper was two years into his tenure as CEO of the furniture giant, and the last three years have been nothing like what he expected. The pandemic meant that for a time, IKEA's 400 stores had to close to keep his workforce safe. Supply chain issues have led to the affordable brand having to raise prices. And the conflict in Ukraine led to IKEA divesting from Russia. If anything, all of these challenges have forged Jesper into an incredibly resilient leader. I was happy to sit down with him as he marks his fifth year as IKEA CEO and hear about his experience. To start things off, I asked what his biggest surprises have been in the CEO role. Here's our conversation. Well, it's been exceptional times. And um, remembering when we met last time, little did we know about some of the strife and challenges that we would experience, of course. Uh, now, I think, of course, we have to recognize that the, the amount of challenges uh, has made this an exceptional period. COVID, uh, inflation, economic uh, uh, challenges, uh, supply chain uh, challenges that we never experienced, I think, anyone in our uh, generation. War uh, in Europe. Um, and on top of that, which is, I think, the most scary thing, to be honest, is the uh, accelerated climate change and how that's impacting people already today. And we're only in the beginning of a journey of trying to mitigate it. So I would say, on one hand, it's been riddled with challenges like we couldn't have imagined. Uh, and at the same time, it's been the most humbling and uh, inspiring, uh, I think, period in my life, seeing how people uh, show the best of qualities when, when uh, times are tough. Why humbling? To be part of something that's not business as usual is humbling, I think, to see how you actually also how you can show up as a, as a community when, uh, when times require you to do the right things. I'm thinking about how no, nothing we learn in school prepared us basically for choosing between business or the safety of uh, people, choosing between, uh, you know, taking economic risks, leaning in, continuing to invest in transformation versus trying to protect the, the jobs. Um, so some of the challenges I think we had to basically skip, there was no map and it was more a need for us just to use a compass of values and uh, togetherness, I think, in order to get through. I don't know if it's possible to take us inside any one of those many decisions you had to make around shutting down stores or pulling out of Russia or mm. dealing with supply chain crises. But when you're making these decisions that aren't part of any playbook that you would have learned about in business school or experienced early in your career at IKEA. Who do you bring into the room? Mm. How do you come to a conclusion? Well, to start with, I think it's the um, basically um, cherishing an old culture in IKEA where we are decentralized and people are empowered to take decisions. And that's been going on since the founder you know, started to build that culture. So it was interesting to see how that culture actually enabled people to not get afraid of making mistakes in the moment when we needed to take decisions at the most. 
But then from a technical perspective, we learned quickly to say some people need to be on the task force for basically for mitigation of immediate crisis. And then we needed to disconnect them from the development agenda or the business agenda just to be uh, in crisis. So we had basically a part of our management running crisis management. And the other part, we then disconnected from the crisis. So we said, we need to work on uh, reprioritizing investments, uh, because as you know, uh, we spoke to, I think last time also, it's not only the uh, here and now that we are experiencing, but also a deep transformation of our business. So we said, how do we not get mixed up in this? Um, and in, I would say it came at a cost because uh, at times we've been tired and people have been in uh, desperate need of vacation. Uh, and such, but we managed to, so to say, run the company on a two-fold speed, um, which was interesting. Nothing we ever have done before, and, um, and we're still doing part of that today. So, How do you get people to f be part of the crisis team versus the st strategic where we are going to be in three years team? I would think that would be uh, an issue within the company where you're looking at your own career and mm. saying, I'm not sure I wanted this either. It, came, know, it, it came quite naturally. So we, we basically had, and I think a lot of uh, corporations have that. You have a CMT team who is set up for risk. And the only thing, you know, the difference is that now we experienced risks uh, live, um, not only theoretically preparing for them. So, so we had people assigned, and I think most companies uh, would have. Um, so I have one of my colleagues, my, my deputy uh, CEO, Corencio, he's... Um, an absolute brilliant leader, and we decided that he would step in and take full charge of the crisis management. Um, and I would then step into the, the more, if you like, business uh, planning and uh, strategic part. And I think, honestly, he did a better job than I did <laughs> looking at it. Uh, they did a phenomenal job in managing not only to ride through the crisis, but to take difficult moral decisions um, <laughs> along the way. That's great. When we talked last, um... It was pre-pandemic, as you mentioned. We were focused a lot on the digital transformation of IKEA. IKEA, over the years, had been um, uh, criticized for not moving fast enough on e-commerce, or questions were being asked, why, why is this company still so focused on the stores uh, versus being able to ship mm. products? In 2021, you saw an 83% growth in online sales, so clearly something has turned around. I would love for you to walk us through what that digital transformation has been like. Are you happy with where things are? Are they, are they where you'd hope they were, or is there still uh, more room to grow? Well, you can say to start with, we're still in that transformation, but we're doing fine, I would say. And uh, here comes the interesting part. So basically, we started the transformation. We were quite late, I would say, and uh, part of that was our own success in the in the previous business model, we were making money, we were growing. Uh, so the, the incentive to, to drive and be a leader in the new omnichannel reality wasn't there in the beginning. And then I, I think I shared with you last time also, when I, when I started this um, assignment, I had the opportunity to travel around the world. So I think I went to some 10, 12 markets um, on a three and a half week, four weeks uh, uh, trip. And wherever I came, people, customers told me, you know, we like IKEA. We, we love IKEA design, the prices, and we will go to IKEA, to the stores also in the future. But on a Tuesday night, when you come home after work, um, cook, put the kids to bed, and if you want to buy something, uh, if you don't show up in, in that reality uh, in a modern way, you will be deselected. So I heard that in Japan, in Poland, in Spain, in the US. Um, so it was clear that our customers were requesting us to, to, to make uh, a shift. So we decided back then, to five years ago to go full blast into digital development. We didn't have e-commerce, I think, on any market uh, by that time. And 
I've said many times it was the maybe the most lucky decision we took. Uh, some have said it was good timing, but what happened was actually when, when the pandemic hit us, and as you know, we had to close down stores. We had long periods of 100% closure of stores. If we wouldn't have had the readiness from an online, we would have been in deep trouble. I mean, losses of jobs and uh, massive red figures, because of course we couldn't uphold any sales at that moment. But we were actually uh, almost through rollout of e-commerce. And what happened was, was that the ambition of a two-year program had to be done in eight weeks. So, so suddenly it was all hands on the deck and get it done. And as some people said, what was your share of online? Well, it was 100% at the moment. And if you look at it, in the first year, we only lost a few percentages of uh, turnover to the year before. So we managed to almost uphold. Um, and then the year after, we managed to accelerate and grow again. So I would say, if you look at it, before pandemic, we were running about 6% um, online. And now we are hovering around 25-30% wow. online and doing profit and doing well on it. So again, lots of things we want to do better. But still, pandemic actually accelerated our uh, omnichannel uh, development in IKEA. What does that tell you that you're able to do something in eight weeks that you thought was going to be two years? Yeah. Well, first of all, when I've been saying that to my team, they also said it was also quite heavy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, you know, but we, it taught us about, it was a lot of things. It's fascinating to see how we see us as being more stuck, more slow before. So like we would have pre-studies and we would reflect on things. So we would be much more bureaucratic, uh, uh, to be honest. And during these days, there was no space or room for second thoughts or uh, postponing decisions. It was just bang on, you have to get it done. And it was also refreshing, I think. It was stressful, yes, but it was also refreshing to see how many good decisions could move us and mobilize us in a short time. Fascinating. Yeah. You spoke about online shopping. Do you think about VR as a potential opportunity for you to showcase your work or is that out, very good out of the future? So basically you say, so IKEA has since quite long, um, many people don't know, but we, we have a library of our products, which is phenomenal digitally. And we are learning now actually how to capitalize on that in our online reality. But a few years ago, I had the experience actually, I was buying a kitchen myself in IKEA and the team actually helped me experience that plan through VR. And it was fantastic. So me and my wife had some discussions on how we would look like on the drawing. And then actually by using VR and experiencing a fake uh, reality of your room, except the risk that I actually almost walked into the, the wall when uh, trying it. Um, so VR is an interesting uh, opportunity. Uh, we're looking into that. What we've done recently, one of the cooler things we've done is here in the US, we launched um, IKEA Creative, which is an app um, it's a company that we acquired a few years ago called Geomagical, which has state-of-the-art um, AI. So basically what it does is through your, your uh, phone, you can scan your room and not only add in IKEA products in a simple way, but you can take out products that you have already on the picture. So you can actually do AI planning of your room. And that is spreading right, right now quite fast as one of the tools of planning and testing and trying what your home could look like. Wow. And mm -hmm. I would assume that that data can also tell you what average rooms look like, what's already Absolutely. in there. So are you using that to think about product development as well? Well, we, we are very cautious on, so we, we have decided to take a quite strict uh, uh, view on how we use data to start with. So we do that with, uh, with consent of customers only, but we are in the beginning, you can say, to, to learn. Then, then we have been, since ages, we've been good at, uh, you know, spending time at people's homes. Um, 
there is a lot of data also historically that has helped us to understand what type of living conditions people have in different markets. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Jesper Broden. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. One of Jesper's areas of focus, and this is a personal focus at IKEA, is sustainability. But it goes deeper than that. He's working to make IKEA an ecologically positive company. When we first spoke, that was just an ambition. And I asked how the pandemic affected IKEA's plan to make this a reality. So basically, I, I think since quite many years back, we've been engaged in, in uh, what we call people and planet. So <clears throat> our people agenda has been, is very much centered around humanistic values and uh, equality. Our, our planet agenda has been now, uh, I would say, uh, immensely strengthened through all the insights we've had the last 10 years on how we actually need to uh, not only uh, mitigate, but adapt to the new climate situation that we're experiencing. So it's interesting because a lot of people, I think like myself, see the moral and ethical obligation that we need to be good at leading this. We need to be part of fixing this because the clock is ticking. We are halfway between the uh, signatures on the paper of Paris Agreement to 2030, where we need to be at half uh, carbon. And as a, as a global community, we are not there yet. Uh, we are far from there. Um, so there is an ethical perspective that I think we are deeply um, motivated by. And that is, um, that's you know, good enough as a reason to move. But secondly, it's super interesting to see how our customers and co-workers are expecting us to be a leader in this space. So today, if I look at the numbers, what has happened the last years, um, when we ask about 30,000 people around the globe uh, of our customers in 30 markets, it's up close to the 80s of people that are deeply concerned about climate change. And I think probably the last summer, it's, it's even escalated further. Um, but um, there is a dangerous gap because only a few percent 
know how they can contribute. People are ready to contribute, but few people know. And even more, which is an important thing, a few people say that they can afford to pay extra for it. So basically the assignment that we have from people is that we need to fix this and fix it in a way so that everybody can afford it in the future. And the interesting, most interesting thing of them all here is that a lot of people think this is a cost, additional cost, but it's the opposite. So when you look at setting your climate plan into action in area after area, it's actually resource smart is climate smart is cost smart. So for us then, serving many people with, uh, with uh, furniture and home furnishings at the low price, we need to be, we need to be, we are in a hurry in order to harvest uh, uh, benefits from renewable energy, uh, circularity and so on, in order to actually be a successful company. So these are the three motivators, I would say. And none of that has been challenged by inflationary concerns. You need to make sure that you're keeping mm. products as inexpensive as possible. It's part of your brand. Mm. Mm. The supply chain problems needing to locate factories Absolutely. near, make sure that you have uh, 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 inventory on hand. I would think all of those would be additional pressures to making sure that you're meeting these sustainability goals. Are they not? It's, it's a bit of both and. It's a bit difficult at the moment to navigate some of this, but I would say to a certain extent, of course, the, the constant challenges of, uh, of the pandemic, including the impact of the war and the energy crisis and so on, is, is uh, piling up uh, challenges for us to mitigate in the here and now. At the same time, I would say uh, the economic bandwidth is uh, so uh, broad where it used to be quite narrow, meaning some of the decisions were difficult to take and today they are much easier to take because the inflationary impact is much bigger than the, you know, the hurdle of taking the investment decision to move into a new material. What's an example of that? Well, like one example is we, a few years ago, we started to invest in um, recycling of mattresses mm -hmm. in Netherlands and the, the mathematics are fascinating. So you have in Netherlands 17 million people there, like everywhere, it's a mattress lasts for approximately 10 years, whether it's at IKEA or somebody else's mattress. So that means 1.7 million mattresses per year in waste. Used to be a landfill. Um, then, you know, governments around the world uh, subsidized incineration, so at least uh, a better alternative. And now together with the government of, of Netherlands, we actually, they actually removed the subsidies of incineration and supported the legislation to that customers need to bring old mattresses to a collection point. And we have now set up four factories, or reversed factories in Netherlands. So we take back every mattress in Netherlands. We have the capacity no who to makes do it. it. Doesn't matter. Okay. And we, so we have a capacity of 1.5 million uh, at the moment. Um, and we are very close to capacity actually now. And the interesting thing is the, the material then going back is metal, foam and polyester and some other components uh, and it's an it's a great business venture so the the price of virgin is far higher today than the price of the recycled material so we are now actually offered to eu and to other countries also to say if you work with us to remove some of the barriers we actually want to take back every every mattress in europe and we're coming here as well to see if we can set up the same successful story a few years ago that might have been a little bit difficult, but now with the bandwidth of inflation and so on, we can actually operate and take some decisions easier. So it's a bit of a mix, I would say. That's fascinating. Mm. It's such an unusual way of thinking, of setting up your own factory, of taking other people's mattresses in, of mm. thinking how that powers your business. For companies that have spent, for mm. CEOs who have been trained to just look at their unique selling points, their unique capabilities, and then outsource the rest, 
what kind of uh, message would you send? Would you say to people to say like, you have to think beyond mm. what what it is that you just do exclusively? No, but I think people do. And so 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 basically, in the IKEA system, also with the different companies and different. Um, responsibilities. The challenge with circularity is that it is by nature involving everyone in the chain. Right. So it's a, it's a different uh, economic model than we used to, right? But as, as IKEA has been involved in uh, integrated value chain for, for a long time, uh, for us this has come quite natural to find ways to, to, uh, to do this. When I was growing up in IKEA working in purchasing, I started there uh, many years ago, I think the incentives were low cost of labor and low cost of raw material. Now more and more, it's more important with low cost of renewable energy and low cost of re-material, if you like. So the game is changing. Hmm. And I would say my advice to, to CEOs, since I also work as a co-chair for the uh, Climate Alliance and World Economic Forum, which is now a, a fairly sizable group of companies who are actually uh, super de- dedicated and committed to Paris. Uh, you know, it's it's getting less people on the on uh, you know waiting for the train and more people on the crowded train to go for it. And the risk you take as a CEO not to act is not only the brand health, where you know your consumers might basically uh, cancel you if you're not trying your best to be part of this economy, but you're missing the economic benefits of it. You're missing the opportunities to actually get friends in society uh, by establishing the new ways of setting up the economy. So what we're experiencing in, is actually in, in a few years only, maybe a decade or two, we are trying to shift an, an economic model that took 300 years to build and at least 50, 60 years to escalate. Um, so it, it's probably the biggest economic uh, transition that the world and humanity has ever experienced. Wow. What have you done to make sure that the internal culture of IKEA is one where you talked about the decentralization, where Innovation is also decentralized, where people mm. can come up with big ideas like mattress recycling or uh, or thinking about ways of circularity. How do you make sure those ideas and that culture of innovation is happening everywhere inside IKEA? Well, to start with, we love to be self-critical in IKEA, so we, we always uh, think we're not good enough in it. And I think c- certain days, I think we are we're a big organization, 177,000 people. We're part of an IKEA network with a lot of companies, big and small. And on our worst days, we're bureaucratic, we're slow, and we have too many processes and too many uh, people uh, may be blocked by where the process goes over the, the power of the decision. But on our good days, I think we, we do have people who dare to take decisions and m- move with it. So a recent uh, initiative that I'm uh, doing is to basically invite all leaders to start with, but everybody to be part of making mistakes. So our founder used to say he had this idea that he would reward uh, the best mistake of the year with $100,000. And then he actually looked at me and said, no, you would win it too often. So he canceled the idea. But, um, but we actually, right now, we actually we have uh, created this like a driver's license to make mistakes. Uh, and we're printing it with a personal name. And I co-sign it in advance. So if you make a mistake, then at least you have one friend to, to say that you're, you're um, the part of it. It's a license to go bananas, actually. So it's a bit of fun, right. but there's a very serious meaning behind it to say, in order for us to develop, we can't simply plan everything. We can't steer everything. We need to operate on ideas wherever we are. And of course, sometimes mean we, we double up on things and we do mistakes and, and there will be some costs and so on. But I would say my biggest worry would be an IKEA where we stop trying. So um, I'm not so afraid of the mistakes, to be honest. 
uh, I think after this, if you wouldn't mind, just put up a post. Uh, we, we've got to see that Go Bananas license. So I think that would be a great post. I have it in my, my it pocket outside. Yeah. All right, great. All right. I might even have one for you. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. I'll, yeah. I, I, I will carry that with pride. Uh, all right. We always uh, end these interviews talking about career advice. We've talked to you about career advice. I'd love to get an understanding of how you hire. What do you look for? What do you tell managers to look for when they are hiring for IKEA? So now, now I'm going to get my people and culture uh, team after me, maybe. But uh, I would say more and more over the years, I look for, for the, the glow in the eyes, the passion. I had uh, once many, many years ago, I was uh, sailing. So I was actually, in my youth, I was sailing across the Atlantic and uh, I joined a boat. And on the middle of the Atlantic, I dared to ask the captain, it was a small boat, 20 meters or something. So I asked him, how come you accepted me as the crew when you didn't know if I could sail? And he said a beautiful thing. He said, well, everybody learns how to sail, he said. And he stayed with me, you know. So I, I tried to look at the character of the person, the values, uh, the glow in the eyes. Uh, more and more I start to look for if people uh, consciously add to their agenda to contribute to people and planet. So I think leaders of tomorrow need to be experienced in digital, into business and so forth. But they definitely need to understand how do you operate people and planetary uh, topics and how do you integrate that into your business in a successful way. So I would say my advice to, to people who are in the beginning of their career, except for doing mistakes and testing and trying, uh, would be uh, look into how you actually integrate people and planetary topics into your CV and how you become successful in transformation of that. Uh, because these are the leadership qualities that we would need in the future. That was Jesper Broden, IKEA CEO. To build off this conversation, check out my newsletter on LinkedIn. It's also called This Is Working. I always love talking with Jesper, and that license to go bananas is something else. He really did have one for me. I'll post a picture in this week's newsletter. What would you do if you had that license? If you knew you could take one big risk, if you didn't have to worry about making a mistake, what would you try in your career? Let me know over on LinkedIn. You can tag me into the conversation using the hashtag, this is working. Please remember to rate and review us on your favorite podcast listening app and tell a friend or colleague. It helps so much. This is Working is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Florencia Iriando, Stephen Valdivia, Alia Savalos, Taisha Henry, Victoria Taylor, and Candace Weiner. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Dave Pond is our head of news production. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.